Chapter 16 of A Mayfair Magician, A Romance of Criminal Science. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Peter Block. A Mayfair Magician, A Romance of Criminal Science by George Griffith. Chapter 16. What a very lovely woman. Who is she? That, my dear Siemens, what, do you mean to tell me that you've been back from the wilds of central Australia all this time without getting to know the beautiful Mrs. Enstone, as everyone in London calls her, except the people mostly feminine, who have reasons of their own for wishing that she was not quite so beautiful? What Enstone? said the first speaker, with a very visible start, as though his companion's words had suddenly reawakened some long-sleeping memory, as indeed they had done, for his thoughts instantly flew back through nearly twenty years. The exquisitely furnished, softly lit London drawing-room, comfortably well-filled with some of the smartest men and women in town, men whose names were for the most part as well-known in the columns of the newspapers and magazines as they were in the faraway outposts of the empire, and women whose beauty or wealth or wit, and often all three, had made them famous wherever society is spelt with a big S, suddenly faded away. A man, gaunt, haggard with a skin like wrinkled brown leather, clothed in rags, and with eyes burning unnaturally bright with the first madness of hunger and thirst, was standing beside the prostrate body of another man, who was lying on the bare, rough, sun-baked sand and rubble, in the shade, such as it was, of a scanty patch of wattle scrub, at the foot of a grey, round-topped hill, which reared itself about a thousand feet above the ghastly solitude of that miserable wilderness which the Australians have aptly called the land of never-never. A horse had just fallen to the ground within a few feet of the dying man, and was lying with glazing eyes and wide-open mouth, giving out its life in long guttural sighs, which rattled and grated deep down in its throat. Near to it stood a mule, its legs wide apart, and its head hanging down almost between its forelegs. He saw the standing man stoop over the fallen one, take his water-bottle, tobacco-pouch, and a pocket-book. He looked at the dying man, then at the water-bottle, unscrewed the top, put it to his parched lips, and drained the last few precious drops of muddy fluid that it contained. Then he dropped it beside his comrade and went to the horse. He took what little food there was left in the saddle-bags, and a little leather bag holding between two and three pounds of pure gold dust. He slung these on the saddle of his almost fainting mule, passed his arm through the bridle, and without so much as another look at the man believed to be dead, trudged away with long, dragging strides towards the southeastward, pulling the staggering mule after him. He had seen all this in one of those swift flashes of memory which pass through the human brain as rapidly as the electric thrill passes along the wire. His companion only noticed a little pause, during which his right hand made a couple of strokes down the two sides of the long, silken-haired black mustache, which shaded and disguised the sharply cut pitiless lips of the man who, for all he knew, had left his friend and comrade to die in the wilderness more than twenty years before. He had done it just for the sake of the few drops of water and the few mouthfuls of food, which, as it happened by one of those strange freaks with which the fates delight to mock alike the memories and the delights of men, had made for him the difference between a little heap of bleaching bones in the solitudes of the great Australian desert and the man who was standing that evening in the drawing-room of Lady Georgina Pontifex in the big corner house in Grosvenor Place 
facing Buckingham Palace Gardens. Headley Siemens, millionaire 20 times over, absolute owner of a patch of desert ground 20 miles square in the midst of which stood that lonely hill on the slope of which Godfrey Enstone had lain down, as he thought, to die. Now it was humming with life and bustling with industry, honeycombed through and through with drives and shafts and tunnels, out of which the rattling trucks and hurrying ships were bringing out the gold-laden ore, half of which, amounting now to many millions of pounds in value, should have been the property of the man who, for all he knew, had died where he had left him. Enstone, Enstone, he repeated to his friend, Colonel Forrester, lately retired with the V.C. and many medals and minus half his left arm, which had been knocked off by a pom-pom shell as he was pulling a badly wounded and very green subaltern out of a hot corner in one of the little disasters of the Boer War. You don't mean the Northumberland Enstones, do you, Colonel? Oh, yes, I don't know of any others, and, as a matter of fact, the family is extinct. Why do you ask if it isn't a rude question? Because, said the millionaire slowly, still keeping his eyes already kindling with an unwanted fire on the most beautiful face even in that room where every woman was or had been a beauty in her time, a good many years ago, before I struck it rich, as they say, I was chums with a fellow of that name away in the back blocks of northeastern Australia. He died there, poor chap, just when we'd found the Lone Hill. Good Lord, what luck, said the colonel, taking a pull at his stubbly gray mustache and turning his bright blue-gray eyes sharply onto the millionaire's bronzed fixed features, and wondering why he, Headley Siemens, a man whose uncounted gold might have almost bought the land of a princess, had lighted up so strangely while he was looking on the fair face and exquisite figure of Grace Enstone. And so the poor chap died, as you might say, on the threshold of a treasure house, which you had the luck to unlock. Well, well, the old story, I suppose. The one shall be taken and the other left. You made the millions, and he left his bones there. By the way, what was his other name? Not Godfrey, was it? Yes, said Hedley Siemens, turning sharply round. Yes, it was. Godfrey Enstone. But that can't be his daughter, because when I knew him, his wife had been dead two or three years, and he had no children. It can't be the same man, and anyhow, as I've told you, he, he died there. I wonder if he really did, said Colonel Forrester in his soul. And if he did, how? It wouldn't be the first time the two men have found the making of millions, and only one of them has come away. Then he went on aloud. Well, that's quite right so far. She's not his daughter, and the Godfrey Enstones I knew never had a child. She is Mrs. Enstone because she married the adopted son of Sir Godfrey, really the son of an old traveling companion of his, a brother explorer somewhere in Central Asia, he died there, and Enstone brought the lad home, gave him his name, and made him his heir. His real name was Docker. The millionaire suddenly turned his head away. A swift contraction of the eyes, a widening of the nostrils, and a twitching of the lips had instantly and irresistibly altered his whole expression. He had good reasons for not wishing the colonel to see it. So he pulled out his monogrammed silk handkerchief and took refuge in a very good imitation of a sneeze. Ah, uh, uh, yes, I see. "'Brought him back from Asia. "'Then, of course, it can't be the same man. "'Very likely the poor chap I knew and never, never "'had got hold of a name that didn't belong to him. "'There are lots like that in Australia now, "'and in those days there were a good many more. "'But if you were a friend of this Sir Godfrey's, "'I suppose you know the lady. "'Would you mind introducing me if you have a chance?' "'Under the circumstances, Colonel Forrester could not say no, 
and yet for some unaccountable reason he would rather not have said yes. As far as he knew, it was the first time on record that this man, multimillionaire, a very Napoleon among money kings, a lion in society who quietly declined to be lionized, and a frankly avowed cynic as regarded all the relations of the sexes, had actually asked to be introduced to a woman. There were hundreds of women who would have given almost anything to be introduced to him, who would have given themselves to him body and soul for the sake of his millions. And there were others who would scheme not a little, as his hostess this evening had done, to get the great Australian gold king for half an hour or so into their reception rooms. And here he was, actually asking for an introduction to a woman he had never seen before. "'Oh, yes, of course I know her,' replied the colonel, not very cordially, as Siemens thought. "'But if you really want an introduction, which, by the way, is a rather curious thing for you, woman-hater and all that, here comes Lady Pontifex. She'll do the needful for you. A great deal better than I could.' A few minutes later, Headley Siemens found himself making the usual conventional inclination before the only woman upon whom his eyes had looked, even with interest since the days, now nearly thirty years ago, when sore-hearted and soured through and through by the faithlessness of the pretty, feather-headed doll he had once called wife, he had turned his back on the world, swearing never to face it again, unless and until he could do so holding that golden scepter which makes man master of most earthly things. He had a ten minutes chat on most commonplace subjects with Grace and Lady Georgina, and then Harold came up and he was introduced. The Gold King shook hands with him, and their eyes met for an instant, after which each felt that he knew the other just as well as he wanted to know him. Then Harold turned to his wife and said, "'I have just had a message from the house, dear, to say that my vote is urgently required to save a struggling ministry from defeat, so I must go. I'll take the brougham and send it back for you at once, and I suppose you can expect me when you see me.' You see, Mr. Siemens, that is one of the delights of trying to catch the speaker's eye. That doesn't sound right, but it's about what it comes to. Uh, well, good evening. I hear you are in London for some time, and so I dare say we shall meet again. Certainly, I hope so, said the Gold King, as he nodded and smiled his farewells. And then, as Harold went away, he turned to Grace and began talking to her with a strange, subtle charm of manner, which would have caused no little surprise to anyone who knew him as the world knew him. And there were few, if any... Who knew him otherwise. About half an hour later, he and Colonel Forrester, who in a quite respectable and honorable way played the part of social jackal to his lion, and did many things for him which he had neither the time nor the inclination to do for himself, made their adieu, and drove away in Siemens' brougham to his splendid flat in Hyde Park Court, overlooking the park. Now, Forrester, he said, throwing himself into a deep armchair and taking out his cigar case, I want you to tell me the complete story of what you call the Enstone tragedy. Of course, I've heard bits of it from the colonial papers, but I was flying about so fast just then and had so many other things to think about that I really paid very little attention to it, though the name struck me as familiar. So Colonel Forrester, when he had selected a cigar and helped himself to a moderate brandy and soda, began at the beginning and gave him the whole history of the strangely involved tragedy down to the death of Jenner Halkine in the snow, the claiming of his body by his sister and Dr. Itza Ramal, and its cremation at Woking, in accordance with his often expressed wishes. For the first time for many and many long years, Headley Siemens, the man of perfect digestion, iron nerves, and unruffled temper, 
sought the oblivion of sleep in vain. Nearly thirty years ago, he had awakened from what was almost a boyish dream of wedded love, and since then, he had never looked upon a woman, save perhaps to admire her in a physical sense, or as something that his unlimited wealth could buy, either as a minister to his pleasures or a necessary aid to his boundless ambitions. And now, with the swiftness of a lightning flash, the unexpected, which might also have been the inevitable, had come to pass. The ice was broken. The volcanic forces, which had been hidden for so long, had burst into sudden and irresistible action. And with something like incredulous amazement, he found himself Headley Siemens, the soulless money despot who had never permitted the life or the honor of man or woman to stand as an obstacle in the way of his schemes, passionately, and in a sense even honestly, in love with another man's wife. And that other man was the son of his greatest enemy, and the adopted son and heir of the friend and comrade whom he had deserted and left to die in the wilderness of Never Never. Was it only an accident, or one of those slow revenges which time and fate work out between them? But the revenge might not be all on one side. He was still in the very prime of life, only forty-seven, and with his millions, his perfect physical and mental health, and his strong masculine beauty, so strangely enhanced by the almost feminine softness, was not he a match even for the fates themselves? And was it not written that the sins of the fathers should be visited upon the children? End of chapter 16. Recording by Peter Block.